You're listening to First Film First, a podcast where filmmakers describe their experiences of making their first feature film. We'll discuss those experiences in the context of their artistic development and their subsequent career opportunities. Join me as we take a deep dive back in time to see how fledgling filmmakers came to their decisions. Welcome to episode six with cinematographer Ula Pontikos BSC, cinematographer of such amazing projects, Run, Second Coming, Glue, television series The Game, Humans, my personal favourite Lilting, for which she won the World Cinematography Prize at Sundance, and Film Stars Don't Die in Liverpool. Welcome to the podcast, Ula. Hi, Chris. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, it's a pleasure. But first things first, we should talk about your very first film, Weekend. So I've got a little thing that Andrew Haig wrote. On a Friday night, after a drunken house party with his straight mates, Russell heads out to a gay club alone and on the pool. Just before closing time, he picks up Glenn, but what's expected to be just a one-night stand becomes something else, something special. It's a brief encounter that will resonate throughout their lives. Weekend is both an honest and unapologetic love story between two guys and a film about the universal struggle for an authentic life in all its forms. It is about the search for identity and the importance of making a passionate commitment to your life which I think is a pretty spiritual summing up of this incredible little film. How did you get involved with Weekend? I believe, I mean, I I was looking for a long time for my first feature. So I think since graduated from film school in 2008, it was March 2008 when I graduated and I just wanted to do the right first film. I think it was really important that I sort of set myself on a path of the long form projects where I really believed in them and, and, and they moved me. So when my agent sent me Weekend, I I sort of thought this is the perfect project. I was very moved. And Andrew, I think at the uh, right at the end, something that I really like doing is when the director puts a sort of a final song. So just before I was reading the ending, he put a, at the time it was a different John Grant song, which ended up in the film, but it was one of John Grant's songs. And it was such a beautiful summary to the movie. And I just got very moved. I thought it was a perfect, perfect film. And I believe that I came on board because Tristan, who was the producer of Weekend, saw my short called Tender, directed by Deborah Haywood, which was shot in Derby. And they liked this sort of mixture of realism and handheld feel and sort of uh, immediate and... uh, a sympathetic portrayal of the, the boy, the main character in the short. So he put my reel forward to Andrew and they, um, I think they liked what they saw. So I think they had a lot of interviews. I think they, they considered lots of DPs and I think Andrew wanted to work with a woman and it sort of ended up on me. The interview went well and I got offered a movie. I think sympathetic immediacy, two of the words that you used during that introduction to that film, are two of the things that I think visually Weekend has in spades. It's so intimate, a portrayal of these two people. And despite the fact that you could see it as Russell's film that has a single protagonist, actually it's the intertwining of these two characters that is so special. How did you and Andrew first start talking? What were the conversations? What references were you using? So Andrew was a massive fan of uh, Mambo Call Cinema and he put forward films like Old Joy by Kelly Raychard and Joyce Swanberg's films like Night and Weekends. And that was the sort of uh, a beginning of the conversation. But I think after a while he decided that it's not only a Mambo Call, that there is a, a certain level to um, 
I found one of his emails and said, it's a mumble call with a sense of control and quiet neorealism. Uh, so we talked about, um, I, I was a massive fan of uh, Wendy and Lucy by Kelly Rachel as well, which I thought I had a, a more of a neorealist element of it. So we also talked about um, uh, Nuri Bilger Silian's film Uzak, which was my favorite film for quite a few years. I saw it when I was back in film school. We also talked about uh, Koreda's film Nobody Knows, which is very realistic, but it had a very intimate portrayal of children stuck in a house. I also like the film called Cloud Nine, which is not a very known film. It's a German film by Volker Nelm, and it showed a uh, realistic depiction of a relationship and affair, and it had a very brave sex scenes. Uh, we didn't go that far, but the film affected me at the time when I watched it. So I think it was a mixture of trying to bring that intimacy to the film, as well as show sort of more of a filmmaker gaze. But... I think the most important thing was the influence of the stills photography of uh, a couple, Colin Queen and Ossian Cher, which were Andrew's friends, and they portrayed their very intimate relationship. The stills were beautiful. And I think that became a base of trying to find the truth in the film and intimacy. And I think Andrew has styled uh, Russell's flat based on uh, Collins and Ossian's place where they lived at the time. There's something really quite open to interpretation about stills. And, and also they're sort of framed entirely different. There's a different convention to a still and a bigger room to interpretation. So I try to always find a still image which embodies the idea, whether I succeed with it or not. Uh, it's a different story. Or a collage of still images. It's kind of like interesting play on interpretation, emotion, and it's sort of slightly less direct than a movie. But not to say that I don't use influence of the movies at all. I just think that the stills are also a fun game. They, they just offer an entirely different perspective. So it was a, yeah, it was a mixture of references. He also gave me a breakdown of each scene with ideas of blocking or maybe an ideas of what he wants to get shot-wise. So it came to block to blocking, we sort of were on the same page. I knew exactly which point he wanted to get into the scene. And then lots of ideas for improvisation. But when actually we started filming it, it, it was very fluid. I mean, weekend was, each scene was progression of time. There, was, there were no cuts. There is only one cut there, which is a small cheat. It's really when, after the night, when they spend the night together, Glenn leaves and uh, there is a direct cut for the coverage through the door. But otherwise, every cut was progression of time which required a certain level of fluidity and certain level of coordination. And I think I was trying to bring as much element of movement as it's possible without being too distracting, but also not feel too static because the majority of the film takes place with two men inside of the flat, where we covered a lot of things. <laughs> and so when you're saying about the chronology, did you shoot chronologically? I mean, there isn't what you would consider to be like a standard thought of coverage of any kind. The way that you photograph the film has these beautiful two shots that contain the relationship or there are a close-up that drifts from one character to the next, listening and responding and responding and listening. How did you break down the way the actors were going to deal with the fact that this relationship takes place over such a short period of time? All the Russell's flat scenes were shot chronologically. 
I believe, except... Oh, no, the sex scene was right at the end. The sex scene we depicted was right at the end. So, yeah, chronologically, I think we haven't shot the whole script chronologically because there are elements of Russell and Friends. So I don't actually remember what point we have been filming that. But for Andrew, it was important that that relationship develops in a chronological way and it grows into more and more intimate relationship. So, yes, that was very much part of the coverage part of the uh, ways of shooting the film. We had a couple of things we had to hit. So Nottingham has a big fairground fair. I think it's called Goose Fair. So obviously we had that date as locked. And then we had a restaurant scene, which I think we had to work around the availability for the place. But otherwise, the section was carefully pre-planned chronologically. I guess Russell's flat acts almost like an incubator for their relationship, all of their key moments that trigger the next phase or the next level of intimacy. They all happen within the walls of the flat. How did you and Andrew decide upon frames? Was it quite organic? Was there loads of rehearsal with the actors? I think it felt very organic. I think Andrew spent time rehearsing with Tom and Chris and then... Sometimes I was a part of the rehearsal. Sometimes I was waiting outside. And then he invited me in. If I haven't been a, as a part of that particular scene, we talked about the coverage and we talked about the movement. Yeah, it felt it felt very nice. I mean, Weekend was one of the nicest shoot I've ever done because it was so small. I think, I mean, I don't know how many crew we had, but no more than 15. We didn't have a first AD. It was just us running the show which in a way was brilliant. And I think that was one of the Andrus's geniuses that it created a certain level of intimacy, not only between uh, Russell and Glenn, but as well as Tom, Chris and myself as an operator. So we felt very connected to each other because I felt very accepted by them when the scenes were filmed. And we were sort of I felt like a third actor in a way because there there weren't any cuts, there were there wasn't any coverage, so I felt I just felt probably the most integral part of the uh, film, more so than any other project because um, you're covered by editing, you're protected by editing. If something doesn't quite work, you could make it better through different coverage. In this situation, I knew that Andrew is going to prioritize the acting quite rightly. So we just had to be all in sync, and we were. And I think that's what, what shows that that level of intimacy was all of us, really. Yeah, there's that beautifully rendered scene. So when they first wake up after the supposed one-night stand and Glenn pulls out the tape recorder and starts to question Russell as to what he was feeling that night, Glenn and Russell end up sort of face-to-face on the bed with the tape recorder between them. and you just quietly move between the two characters, but it's very casual and it's very intimate. And the act of being a third person in the relationship doesn't ever feel sort of voyeuristic. You always feel just intimately connected. Um, I'm guessing that was a completely deliberate thing on the part of yourself and Andrew. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I remember that scene, uh, the intimate scene of recording that that was obviously very early on. I was sitting on the bed with them we just sort of like we felt very cozied up together it never felt that yeah the challenge is to show this progression of time because that particular scene from the moment where russell brings a cup of coffee it was an instant coffee to glenn 
So that was a, a one part of the story. Then there was a progression of time. Glenn decides to take the recorder. And then there is a some time later. Like it could be minutes, it could be seconds, it could be mainly minutes. There is this intimacy being built through uh, through the conversation they've been recording. So it's a challenge to sort of bring that level of variation uh, with different angles. But it felt very organic. Um, yes. Uh, my favourite shot in the film is, I think it's on the tram network. I think there's a little tram network in Nottingham. And it is a two-shot, dirty of some foreground of two people standing on the tram. And Russell and Glenn are sat down and they're having a conversation about their growing intimate relationship. And even though it's a two-shot, the two bits of foreground block one of the characters faces at certain points and and acts like a curtain to the audience to withhold certain bits of detail and the shot is held for the entire duration of their I think it's like a three minute conversation uh, between the two mm. characters how do you go about planning for that or is it allowing the haphazard allowing the happy accidents to happen were you in control of those foreground elements yes we rented a section of the tram and Andrew and I talked a lot about how different you know, I don't know how it is now, but but obviously we shot it 10 years ago and things have moved forward. But Andrew and I talked about how different straight relationship is to gay relationship and how exposed you you are and how aware you are of the kiss or holding hands. And uh, especially for character like Russell, who really hasn't come out to his friends and trying to sort of, you know, he was trying to sort of, he felt more exposed than Glenn. Glenn was just the complete opposite. He was daring the viewer. But obviously, I think at the time in the tram, I don't remember exactly what they were talking about. But I remember that I, I wanted to have a feeling of them being surrounded by people. And obviously, I've been influenced by being lucky enough to work with Chris Mangus. And, uh, and his sort of sense of foreground and background is pretty incredible. So we set the, the background artists to be part. And I think the background artists, I think in this particular case, were the crew that I set them next to the camera. And then the, the rocking just happened very organically through the, the movement of the tram. But I think it all came with an idea that um, they were part of the surrounding, that they were exposed. These conversations happened in public. That's, that's where the initial idea came from for that shot. Yeah, it's one of my most favorite shots in the movie too. Yeah, it's beautifully constructed. And like you say, what it works brilliantly to do is to juxtapose with the more intimate scenes in Russell's flat. So you can see how they have their outside faces on or their outside relationship on the tram and they have their interior relationship in Russell's flat. I mean, I couldn't mention the tram without mentioning the earlier scene where you make an appearance in the bottom left-hand corner of frame, which everybody should look out for. There's a smiling, nervous-looking cinematographer oh. sat in the foreground pretending to be a background artist. You did a very fine job. So interestingly that you mentioned Chris Mengis, Chris has come up on a couple of previous podcasts, even though this is only podcast number six, which goes to show his level of influence. I wonder if you just want to talk a little bit about what led you, you know, one of the things that's important is what led you from, from weekend to now, but actually... I'd love to hear a bit more about what led you from film school to weekend and what led you from Poland to the NFTS. Oh dear. So I used to study environmental science in Poland. I think I always wanted to study photography and I wanted to go to art school. We had this art school, high school. So you do your A-levels, essentially art school A-levels. But my parents didn't think that 
it will prepare me. I think they had an idea that I will do something a little bit more within the technical science, whether there will be a computer work or it would be chemistry. I was quite good at chemistry. And I, and I was interested in environmental science. And, you know, 20 years later, I think I suppose I, I should have really stuck to it because it's a, it's a very noble profession and really important one. But we had a lot of economy. I think the, the, the course prepared us to work on, as a project manager rather than actually being sort of on the ground uh, with team of scientists. And I just didn't like economy. I, I found it as a struggle and to learn all the formulas and the basis of economy. Again, very important subject, which I should have stuck to it. Anyway, it didn't happen. I went to a school of photography, evening school of photography, and then decided I'm going to sort of pursue career in a more creative way, which led me one way to another to UK. I arrived there for 11 days and just haven't left 22 years later. But through the sort of a trial and error, it took me a while, I asked Alan Five to teach me. Alan Five at the time was working at ARI, it used to be REGB. I asked him to teach me to load magazines to help out on a short film, which he did immediately. And I found my passion in cinematography, firstly through assisting times. So my first job was on Dirty Pretty Things. That was my first full-length job as an assistant. I was a trainee. And then my last job as a trainee was Notes on the Scandal, both with Chris Mengus. So obviously, I mean, I've been assisting for about five or six years, and uh, they were my sort of most important bookmarks. So I suppose that he has become an influence. I also admired the documentary work which Chris has done before, and I wanted to explore documentary filmmaking and partially why I did my little stint at film school uh, called China's Wild West, where I took a 16 mil camera to Xinjiang, which premiered at Sundance. But I think it, it sort of weekend was confirmation of my desire to tell stories which are personal, which are poignant, which creates empathy. And I thought that when one is at film school, whether it's NFTS, I think NFTS, you, you have to really describe yourself. But the, in the previous college, I've been one that spent lots of soul searching and figured out what is the best way of conducting one's career. And I felt the documentary, I never had a capacity to really trust my moral compass by doing documentaries. I think it's an extremely important subject, but one has to be very careful how they tread this territory. And whether it's a photojournalism or whether it's a documentary filmmaking, you're dealing with personal lives. And I never felt that I'm the person who really should be taking that responsibility. I felt that there are so many amazing filmmakers who are doing these things better. But my interest within personal stories are still there. And fiction does give you that level of personal connection and empathy, as well as not treading that carefully of, I mean, I think moral compass should be employed on every project one does. But I think it's just not as important, or maybe it's not as heavyweight as it is on documentaries, because you are dealing with, a, with actors and scripts. It's a more collaborative endeavour on the fiction. Yeah, when I was talking to Barry Aykroyd about his documentary background, he spoke about the responsibility of picking the camera up and shooting somebody going through some level of emotional or, or physical trauma and how you have to be able to not turn a blind eye and how difficult that is to weigh yourself against. And similarly, to channel that sensibility in narrative filmmaking allows you to get 
the level of intimacy that you found in Weekend allows you to place a camera casually and with empathy and with solidarity with a character view their life unfolding and I think that's what gives Weekend its reality is its unblinking eye and its containment of emotion within the frame. Thank you. So post-film school, in between graduation and weekend, what were you finding yourself doing? Were you reading scripts looking for that feature film, looking for the long-form project? Yes, I was. I mean, I was I was lucky. It's such a different reality, you know, that 10, 12 years was comparing to what it is now. You know, the paths of people's career. Nowadays, you're more likely to do music videos and then from music videos possibly go to commercials while you're looking at your long forms project at that time commercials were really good commercials or any decent commercials were really reserved for uh, for sort of experienced cinematographers but I always felt that I wanted to develop a, a sort of much more em- empathetic route so I didn't want to do any commercials when I did my film which got into Sundance I went there and I I went and met Martina Amati which we did a short film called I Do Air which won BAFTA for Best Short Film. So that was really lucky that it sort of enabled me to have a... I was enough on the radar to be able to look at the first low-budget features and get the scripts sent over. There wasn't that many, but I think they were. I think that the sort of low-budget schemes which were running around were, were a great way for filmmakers to start the career. And actually, I don't know whether there is that many... I think it's a fine balance. Weekend was such a small budget movie. I think it was a 90,000 or 100,000 pounds. But Andrew is very clever about making it right. So it never felt like a push. It never felt like we are, um, we are stretching ourselves to the limit. It just felt like a nice collaboration and a very family-like surrounding. We never tried to be a film which looks more expensive. We just tried to be what we are an intimate portrayal of a relationship. So what you just touched on was a sort of philosophical authenticity that Andrew was wanting to bring to the project. So authentically staying true to the budget, not trying to adhere to some level of gloss. So you already spoke about having a small crew. What was the sort of size of the camera package, the lighting package? How tooled up did you get? How tooled up were you allowed to be? It it was very small. So I looked through my notes actually this morning and... The whole idea, I think, started with shooting on Sony EX3 with a zoom lens. Again, we have to remember that the digital technology was just coming in. It was a relatively new thing. We had a sections of films where uh, we had a long creeping zooms. And that had a, a sort of a feel. Again, we talked about internal world and external world. And the EX3 and the zoom lenses were the sort of external world outside of their relationship, of the viewpoint of the public, a viewpoint of others. And the whole sort of idea really uh, relied on the final scene of a slow zoom in to create the world of the trains and train station and the big goodbye into the final kiss, which was a big deal for Russell because he kissed Glenn or anyone in public. So it was that feeling of the public leading to intimate moments. So Sony X3 was the initial camera, but I was really worried because we were filming in uh, in a real location. So the first party scene where Russell and Glenn uh, meet each other, 
that was actually a real club. And obviously, EX3 was not very light sensitive. It wasn't also the nicest of the cameras. So I decided to combine the, the Canon 5D, that was a Mark I, with CP2 lenses which just came out, which was the main package of the movie. And then the zooms happened on Sony X3, which kind of have a very different color balance. So part of the tricks in grading was to create a uniform look. But actually, if one sees, they see the difference between the X3 and the Canon. But actually, I think it works very well for the story. So that was a very small camera package. This Canon 5D was shot on the rig. It was all very fiddly at the time. Nothing really fit together. And the HDMI cables were always broken and you had to get a new one. And, you know, things things were just so fiddly, uh, exhausting. And I think lighting-wise, again, very small package. There were some... We didn't have a LED sky panels or anything like that. So there was just a mixture of like 650s, smaller 350s and 1K, 2Ks and some gels and, and some small daylight. I mean, Russell's flat was, I think, on the 11th floor. So we scheduled things around the uh, daylight hours. And then we just worked with a m- number of practicals and argumenting the practicals to get the exposure. Uh, a very small package. We had a, a gaffer, Angelica Padberg, and a one assistant who I think we trained up to be a spark. And my camera team was David Agaf, Raphael for Focus. And we had a data wrangler. Yeah, it was very, very, very small. And runners to sort of help out. <laughs> to get the gear to the 11th floor in the first place. It sounds incredibly lean and mean, but I guess that economy of scale enabled you to register the intimacy, really. Yes, I mean, we, we initially thought they were going to shoot 16 mil, which I think all joy was shot on 16 mil. But Andrew wanted to have his script was very carefully, like th- there hasn't been much improvisation. I think the way how we entered the scene was with via improv and we exit via improv. But actually everyone had to stick to the dialogue. So it was very controlled. But he also wanted to get moments out of the scripts we actually were, which could come and bring some additional magic between the characters. So he wanted to have a flexibility, which which 16 mil, obviously, with 10 minutes mag, uh, would be a little bit more restrictive. I'm sure that we shot scenes for longer than 10 minutes. And obviously there was a budget as well. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So if you're going to run two minutes of improv before every scene, then you're quickly going to run out of today's allotment of stock. So moving forward a couple of years working on other productions. I guess the closest relation to Weekend is your film Lilting that won the World Cinematography Prize at Sundance. How did you get involved in that film? And I just wondered if you wanted to talk a little bit about their similarities and their and their differences in their visual styles. I mean, Lilting is such a different movie, I think, you know, except except for actually a gay relationship. It's more about loss as well as it's more about loss of a child and lack of communication with the outside world obviously there is a relationship story and then the memory of it but really lilting is more about the relationship between the boyfriend and the mother and the fact that they can't communicate with each other because the mother has been living for a long time in the uk but never learned she, despite the fact that she speaks, I think, um, within the script, something like seven languages, she never mastered English. Uh, so she always lived in a disconnection 
disconnection with the country she lived for such a long time. And I find I found a parallel of it because my father's family, I have a very vague memory of my great grandmother from my father's side, who was Greek and lived in Poland for a very long time, but she never mastered Polish. So I know that these relationships do exist. I was very young when she died. I think she was over 100 years old. No one knew because she, she lost her birth certificate during the war and First World War or maybe a civil war. I'm not quite sure, but she didn't. She never knew how old she was. It was always a guesstimate. And I just have those memories of trying to communicate in, in very broken Greek, which I really don't know at all. And the only thing I've learned is to ask her for an apple. <laughs> <laughs> but I really got affected. That was the basis of that story for me, Pepe's relationship to her son's boyfriend who didn't come out to her through the cultural differences and certain cultural pressure he was experiencing. And I also found the script extremely funny. So we shot it entirely different in many ways because we had coverage. We had to light it because we were shooting in December for a start. So we were running out of daylight hours very quickly. And Ben Wisho's um, availability was uh, very narrow as well. I mean, he was pretty much in most of the scenes, but... um, that since when we were shot only with Pepe, who was playing June, Kai's mother, you know, we, we, we couldn't be as creative within the schedule as we were with Weekend. And December is probably the worst time to rely on daylight hours entirely. So I called Panavision at the time and I've asked them whether they would be willing to help us. And I think I was something like 15 times over budget for my initial lighting list with 90% discount. And I've, I've just called Panavision and asked them, you know, would you... Oh, Panalax, sorry. I've asked Panalax and I asked them whether they would be willing to basically be a uh, sponsor in the movie. Because there was just, I was just saying, there's just no amount of discount that can make the schedule work. And they said yes, which was pretty incredible. So we made it work somehow, which I'm very eternally grateful to them for that. And Lilting in many ways is uh, much more expressionistic. Hong's circular idea of sort of connecting memory through they're little collages of just uh, a memory of passing between now and and the past and past and now, you know, in a circular moment. You know, that that was just a wonderful inspiration for the, a wonderful idea and really good fun to make. The culmination scene when everyone is dancing, I mean, we were, we were in tears because it was just very, very funny because you have a one couple dancing and then, you know, they change the partners. The other, the other person was running around, getting changed in the background while the camera is moving around. It's actually quite interesting because that that sort of formed a basis for the transitions for the film stars Don't Die in Liverpool, which is very much that too, you know, just trying to find a a little mousetraps where actors can run through and it works around circularity. I mean, I love those sort of challenges. They were pretty brilliant. And they're very funny when people around are filming what happens behind the scenes. Because just inevitably, at some point, you're going to have a button wrongly put together or the trousers don't quite work and then everyone is just laughing. Yeah, exactly. You're trying to contain this incredibly emotional moment drifting to some part of somebody's memory behind you. There's somebody struggling to put on a pair of trousers and falling over a sofa as they're trying to run and get back into shop. Exactly. Amazing. So just going back to Weekend, one of the things that is interesting and fairly unique about the film was that Andrew edited the film himself. In terms of the shot choices and scene choices, did Andrew let you in on things ahead of time before you showed up to set? I think it was a mixture of both. So he had an idea of how he wants to put the film together. And actually, not that many things changed from the script. Just scenes got tightened and 
more concise and and certain scenes just disappeared just they felt too long or certain moments within the scenes disappeared obviously if it happened right at the beginning or right at the end or he just cut out for the scene earlier but the idea was there and actually the sort of overall arc of the film was very much in Andrew's head and I think for me it just felt I knew what he wanted and it was just a matter of sort of making it hopefully better so there were moments where we discussed the coverage and, and I was suggesting sometimes a much more dynamic movement and sometimes he agreed and sometimes he didn't. But it felt very collaborative. It felt that we are all part of the team which can bring their own ideas to the scene. I mean, what's interesting is that the film itself is a ticking clock. You know, they have until a certain point on Sunday night. Did Andrew have a stopwatch on set all the time? How were you gauging the energy of the performances to make sure that because there's no coverage to tighten up the dialogue, because there's no coverage to lose lines if, you know, to get to the next scene faster? How did you guys deal with those scenarios on set? That's an interesting question. I think Andrew was aware of time because I do remember that we talked about how long the scene was I don't remember you know you're so engrossed when you operate on a movie you just sometimes don't know what goes behind the scene and I think he was editing while we were shooting in the evening so he was very much in control I mean Andrew comes from editing background so he used to be an assistant editor and he edited his own shorts and he edited uh, Greek Pete, which was his documentary drama sort of first project. So I think he was very aware of what he wanted and very in control, how he wants to tell the arc of a story. And I vaguely remember that, you know, he, he wanted to fill weekends to be tight, not too boring, but give space for the dialogue and the, all the themes, which were obviously very important to him. And different viewpoints of Russell's character and uh, and Glenn's character because that was that was really his um, that was the sort of inner dialogue he had about different ways of looking at gay relationship you know and the discussion between two of them filled with lots of scenes of drugs <laughs> yeah lots of scenes of drugs and lots of lighters being flicked on and lots of uh, credit cards cutting up lots of lines but I think as somebody that's watching the film to analyze the dramaturgy. What I was struck by is that you're much more aware of the pauses in the dialogue, much more aware of the silences and the thoughtfulness between the two characters. That's not something that you see in a coverage-heavy film, that level of a visible internal monologue. There's actually something quite interesting about Weekend, which I haven't really realised. Somebody commented that there is a level of desaturation which is quite unusual. Whether it is or not, I can't comment. But I do remember coming back to Poland and thinking about it and realised that winters in Poland have very specific hue, which is different to the UK. And it does feel rather blue and uh, slightly monochromatic when it's sort of covered by the, uh, by the thick cloud of winter days. And I remember that light these colours just render themselves different than they render themselves in England, at least, at the sort of southeast England, because obviously UK is just so varied within the lighting, how the light works uh, in different parts of the United Kingdom. And you're right, those winter days spent walking between cinemas in Wuj or Bogosh or Turun at the Cameron Marsh Festival. There is always such a crystalline grey sky. Mm-hmm. Hopefully I get to shoot a film there one day. You never know. Fingers crossed. 
Actually, thinking about the sort of uh, Korean cinema or Japanese or, or even, let's say, Iranian, or do you think that a certain level of composition differs because of the way how the alphabet and uh, the reading directions are arranged? Yeah, absolutely. I think that there's a convention in the West that the dominant screen direction, the dominant action is left to right. Yes. Accidentally, without organising it, car chases happen more frequently left to right than right to left. So yeah, I definitely feel like that is a kind of hidden vernacular. Just reading has such a huge influence, you know, for relatively a small section of the sort of, you know, we're talking about the humanity from the from the beginning of mankind. You know, reading is, is only a sort of a, a relatively new art form, uh, and especially when it becomes sort of like accessible to everyone. So it's interesting that it had such a sort of ingrained influence on our aesthetics, the direction of the reading left to right. We're just discussing about uh, the work of James Wong Howe you know, in things like Sweet Smell of Success or HUD, how differently framed his sensibility is, although you're working on a sort of like um, just a heavyweight of old Hollywood cinema. Do you ever feel like you'd like to return to Poland to shoot a film? Have you any plans to? I mean, I was really moved by um, by movies like Cold War, which just sort of become... It's interesting because Pavel had such a different take on Polish culture in the Cold War. And I was extremely grateful for it because it sort of brought over the, I think by, by the fact that he lived in the UK for so long, he made a love story to Polish heritage, which I sort of forgot that it exists because I think when you're there, you concentrate on more of a reality of everyday living. I'm, I'm a big fan of Małgorzata Szumowska, but her films are just so raw and, and real and, and sort of their critique on the current state of Poland as a society. And, you know, they have a place for it. But I was extremely appreciative of Pavel's sort of ode to our heritage and, and, and a certain level of melancholy and, and musicality of things, which I do remember growing up with, but you sort of forgot. I do feel rather disconnected. So it would be interesting to do something Polish-based now because because I don't go there very often because I'm sort of in so many other places doing projects. So the visit back home or visit sort of quite intense short periods of, of catching up with the family. So they are sort of something very different. But um, I, I would like to travel and uh, revisit the countryside. I mean, the Lake District is just rather fabulous. And actually, unfortunately... Uh, too many other ways. But one of my favorite films was Knife in the Water. I think it's so brilliant. And it's set in a lake district. Uh, and it's such a great sort of portrayal of a couple under duress. But but the couple themselves were, were just so brilliant. Going back to Poland, maybe what Pavel is seeing is the sort of the timelessness of Polish heritage and Polish culture. You know, when you live in a current moment, you know, there is a, such a push and pull of the current effects where when you think about something you know, with a perspective of 20 or 30 years, it's, it's a mere impression of everyday life and memory is very fickle and it chooses to be very selective. So it's in a way easier to be kinder when you look at the retrospect of something than live in a current climate, especially nowadays. I mean, Poland is is sort of such a push and pull between the church and everyday living, which become very highly political. I think it's a hard step back from it when you live it on an everyday basis. And, you know, he made his film 
set in 60s or 50s, actually. A long period of time, I think it covers a decade. I don't really quite remember, but it's post-World War. It's easy to be melancholic about it and choose the right moments of what was great. And now, you know, hopefully we will be looking at that retrospect of Poland. And we already are looking at the retrospect of Poland of Decalogue, Kishlovsky's Decalogue, for example. They're very, you know, very poetic. I think as a Paul watching it, I had a very different ideas. And then I was watching Decalogue in Great Britain and it had a different influence on me. And now looking at it from the perception of time, going back to this reality, it, it's something else. You know, that's so wonderful about filmmaking is that it's your interpretation of a film also lays with the present moment. Slavomir Jack's one of my favourite cinematographers. I love his, I guess, his dedication to image manipulation. And a complete unconventional approach. Yeah, absolutely. Not using natural colours, you know, rather than allowing a scene to exist within the natural colour space. We spoke about it with Alvin Kuchler as well. That blanket hue of a short film about killing or the, the use of blue in Three Colours Blue. Blue, yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. I was fascinated by the colour theory and the significance it has on different cultures. Like, For example, the red is the colour of celebration in the Chinese culture. And then how white signifies different things in European culture and how it signifies in the in the Chinese culture. You know, color theory is just such a powerful tool for expression. And then there was this sort of tiny blip, I would say, you know, from late 90s in Britain, I'm, I'm referring to like uh, fairly recently where color hasn't been explored that deeply. It's like, you know, with the LED panels and digital technology through the music videos, it's the colorful filmmaking came back, but I did miss it. I think it just like for, for a little while, the sort of the British realism forgot the color. Uh, not everywhere, obviously. I think Chris was pretty great with exploring the color. And, but I think my flippant memory of 10, 20 years of British cinema was quite, quite monochromatic. <laughs> Yeah, there's a heavy sense of naturalism to British cinema. I guess the colour was reserved for US co-productions. So, yeah, so talking about Weekend, obviously knowing that this conversation was going to occur, you've had a little look back at your notes from the film. I'm just wondering if you were to take yourself back to just before your first meeting with Andrew or just before your first day of shooting with Andrew, what would you tell yourself? Would you do anything differently? The interesting part of, of that transition period when digital started coming out and finishing the film school at the time and the sort of lack of technology advancement, you kind of never knew where you're going to end up. I don't know whether you remember that time when you shot from London to Brighton. Did you not feel that there is a, a sort of, that when you start grading, uh, it could work and it could not, that maybe you underexpose something or you overexpose something, that the control of the digital cameras weren't as I, I don't. I didn't feel that I was so much in a no. How do you feel about that? For me, that transition was. I, I shot a film called Sex and Drugs and Rock and Roll on sixteen millimeter, mm-hmm. and then the next project that I shot was a TV series called Misfits that was on the Red One. And, and my only previous digital experience before that was uh, a film that I shot on the Ari D twenty about oh, yes. 18 months before recording onto tape and so I, I i felt like i felt like i was taking sort of incremental steps in the direction of digital cinematography but still knowing that almost all of my work had previously been on film i mean with misfits as an example i shot the whole tv series not really trusting the red one 
mm-hmm. in terms of its exposure to tungsten lighting. I did some tests and I thought that when it was when I was photographing using tungsten lighting, you know, at 3200 Kelvin, it wasn't 800 ASA, I didn't think. So almost all the scenes, even the night scenes, are half corrected towards daylight or I was using HMIs, you know, rather than tungsten sources. Um, because I just I didn't believe that it could render tungsten well. I mean, I remember that we've read, and and I think the initial few years I was always looking with the sort of a, a uh, jealousy for filmmakers who were able to test digital cameras and then sit down in there because I I don't think you know the cameras really well until you grade enough and you have underexposed things or overexposed. I was I felt much more comfortable at that time when I was shooting weekend. I felt much more comfortable with the film format. So there was a, a huge insecurity of what am I going to get? You know, like digital nowadays feels like a safer pair of hands when at that time it didn't, uh, which was quite interesting. So so perhaps maybe I would be braver in certain places, but actually I'm, I'm really happy with weekend. I think the weekend just has a, such a cozy feeling about it all. I don't think I would change. I don't think I would change much, not from that movie. I think it was a very special experience. I probably would tell myself differently on, on all the consecutive projects, but not that one. That one just felt just right. And I remember thinking at the time when I was filming it, it says that it is very unique. And if it will happen again, I will be waiting for a very, very long time if, if I ever film such an intimate story in such an intimate setting. Because it was just a bunch of people who happened to know each other, get on and, um, and did the movie. It's great. When you've got everybody that's working for one common goal, that really shines through in the rushes in what you produce. I think having a small, unique crew, like, you know, just the fact that we didn't have a first AD is such a sort of, I mean, we, we had a first AD on the bigger days. We had days with extras. So there was, I think, two or three days out of 17 days shooting. We had two or three days, I think two, but maybe three, uh, with a first AD came came to help us out because it was just a bit of a, a minefield how to control the set. But otherwise, it was just Andrew pretty much doing it all. So inevitably, it does become very intimate. I think with traditional form of filmmaking, you know, it's it's obviously you need to find that moment, that special moment on set. But it is also about the logistics and you have to be very carefully prepared. And I'm not saying the logistics are not pleasurable, but they just are a different beast. Exactly right. And the logistics can often simply get in the way. So that was advice to yourself. Do you have any advice to young filmmakers out there that maybe have just left film school or are just leaving university and preparing to embark on a career as an assistant or thinking about going to film school? What would be your takeaway from the first sort of 15 years of your career that you could advise people as to what they should be thinking about? I always had this desire in my early 20s that I do something for a living which doesn't feel like a work. And I think that I've achieved that, that my my job is not my work. You know, they, there are days which are tough. There are days which are unbearable, but actually I love my job. And I think to love the job, I think one, because it's a, it's a very long time. Yeah, I think if you are lucky enough to work in the industry, it's important to find the voice you like participate or you like to input into the project. And I think I looked at my life that I want to work on the projects I like or uh, I feel connected to and that was a sort of important part of my decision making so 
I had a fair share of not great scenarios or not great situations, but I had a much more experiences where I love the job or I love with I love the people who I work with. And I think I mean it sounds super lame, but I just sort of, you know, follow your gut instinct, follow your heart, because you know, that's a career which hopefully will span over, I don't know, 30, 40, 50 years. So you'd better like what you do for a living because I think by liking, I mean choose the projects you like doing. I think that's that's I can't think of anything else, you know, being being away from the family and friends and support network somewhere on a project you really hate so that's the way how I look at things obviously there's not foolproof scenarios and you might end up with a bad one or but in general I think people are nice people people are trying to make it work and I think the connection to the story and connection to the characters and whatever it may be it's important because you'll be thinking about that project for a very long time yeah, exactly. You are going to be immersed in a project for, you know, what could be six months or a year or 18 months of your life. And to be immersed on something that is not coming from a good place within inside you is is not a way to live your life, I don't think. Yeah, I mean, you know, each to their own. That would be that would be my advice. I prefer to work on the projects I just like being inspired by. Yeah. This year has been a particularly awkward year for filmmaking. How have you stayed busy? How have you stayed on top of your artistic output, not being able to be on as many film sets as you'd like to be? I was prepping on something in New York when the lockdown happened. So obviously the first three months were a bit disorientating and and bizarre for everyone. And I think it's just a matter of, you know, making sure that you spend time with the nature. I think I just grew loving parks of London. I think they're just such a heartbeat of the city the oxygen, the sanity, the presence of ever-changing nature is just presented to you because when you're in a in a much more urban environment, you don't see the changes of seasons so much. Uh, so parks become like a really important part of, of me sort of relaxing. But I've actually been really busy because um, I've done a two-part BBC drama, which BBC hasn't officially, it hasn't done any press release, but it's a very important story. It's an important story which connects my where I come from and connects Great Britain as well by the subject, by the importance of the freedom of choice. And uh, and I worked with a fabulous director, Alex Kaliminius, and uh, who's that was my first project. And we kind of sort of got on with things together because we created a social bubble. So that was really intimate, actually, as well, because we couldn't go out or see anyone it was pretty much prep and work so I think um, we grew quite close together but that was great I did some commercials and music videos but I didn't feel particularly safe to go from project to project I just preferred to do something long form I think it fitted my mental state and I'm very glad that I've done this unfortunately I can't talk about it at this particular moment and then I'm back in New York to hopefully pick up to where we left in March so let's see what are we going to go ahead or not? I'm feeling I'm feeling very positive about it. But if not, then we've got even more prep. So that can't be wrong. But I feel I feel like we're going to go ahead this time. That's great. Yeah, there's only so much prep you can do before you drive yourself completely insane. So I went to university in Nottingham. So just dropping back to weekend, I went to university in Nottingham. And Nottingham is not a city that is particularly photographed. 
you know, um, control was shot there, but there aren't that many feature films that feature the city as a living, breathing character. And I really felt that Weekend has Nottingham woven through the film intimately from scene to scene, especially the great big wide shots of tower blocks and the little humans that inhabit this concrete jungle. Mm. So as a son of Nottingham, I would like to thank you for rendering it in such a beautiful way. Well, there was... There was um... You know, but I'm very fond of Midlands. I think shooting in Derby and shooting in uh, in Nottingham, it's it's so different than London. There is a very different mentality to it. So I'm very fond of that that region. But also, you know, as, as I said, big heart of to Andrew. You know, finding the right locations. The tower blocks, I think, don't exist anymore. I think, but I'm not sure. I think they have been demolished. But uh, but they were they were quite special. I was brought up in that sort of reality as well. So, so it felt very familiar <laughs> through Polish upbringing. So, yeah, I was brought up in blocks of flats. I guess there are similarities to the 11th floor in Nottingham. Yeah, well, I, I was brought up on the 10th floor for majority of my sort of life. I remember just, just outside of my, uh, of my window, there was a power plant with massive chimney. And I always imagined that the chimney, when, it was, uh, when the steam was coming out, that's that's what creates the clouds. <laughs> Amazing! I love the cloud busting idea. I mean, it's it's just a beautiful image of a of a young Ula looking out the window, amazed that the beautiful soft grey light has been created by this amazing machine on her horizon. Ula Pontikos, BSc. Thank you so much for joining me for the conversation and thank you for going back in time and and rediscovering Nottingham and rediscovering Weekend in a way to enlighten us. Well, thank you, Chris, uh, very much. I've been enjoying it. I wasn't as scary as I thought. (laughs) So please like or subscribe or any other thing you like to do with a podcast. But most importantly, join me again for the next conversation. Thanks again.